Welcome back to Devs Talking. We've been uh, on a little bit of a break. Um, the holidays sort of got away from us. And then, I don't know, some things happened that were January and February. Um, and I feel like uh, those are just an extension of the holidays for us. Uh, so we're, uh, we're back. And, and here I have, as always, the Jameses. So I have uh, James Thomas. Howdy. And James Fargo. Hello. Hello. And uh, so what we're going to do today is sort of a reintroduction back into uh, our Devs Talking podcast. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what we've been up to in our extended break. And uh, and then uh, we're going to try to get this thing onto more of a regular schedule going forward. So, um, you know, let's sort of jump right into that. Um, James Thomas, do you want to take it away? And what have you been up to since, I don't know, the last time we did one of these is back in November or something. So it's been interesting. It's actually been since at least before November, because we haven't done one since I've been on my current project, which started in October. Um, so yeah, it's probably been since either August or September. Um, but yeah, um, been doing all right. Um, I'm on a, a new uh, client right now. Um, I like it uh, a good amount. It's mostly focusing on the quote-unquote DevOps side of things. Um which I don't know. It's it's not not I think really what people tend to think of when they when they think about DevOps. But I mean, it's hard to say because DevOps is such a giant ocean of a of a topic. But it's mostly focusing on doing the kind of things that I I like, which is focusing on um, trying to move people more into like a continuous a delivery, continuous deployment kind of model. So a lot of um, helping build uh, CI pipelines, a lot of working on automating uh, things like uh, like deployments and, and other infrastructure related tasks, so that you know you have a nice reliable um, bed to to kind of build off of. Um, so it's been pretty good, and uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, it's been going pretty well. Uh, I recently uh, gave a talk, actually not too long ago, at a meetup group that I host on kind of the learnings that I've gotten over the past yearish of doing this kind of of work, and in particular focused on um, one of the, the things that kind of become like a, a go-to tool in my kit, which is using Docker for doing, uh, builds, which I think at least Mr. Spargo has some experience there also. Um, but it's been, uh, something that I've, I've, uh, used, uh, quite a bit. Cause like the nice thing about it is that, um, like one of the things that constantly bites me whenever I'm doing any kind of build, and I'm sure sure everybody's had this kind of experience, is that when you don't have a pristine, clean build environment, it becomes hard to predict what the results of your build are going to be. Um, you can have all sorts of errors that pop up, you know, maybe once in a blue moon that you you really can't can't explain, um, and it becomes really frustrating and, and difficult, and it causes you to start mistrusting your CI pipeline and process, and um, overall causes just a lot of headaches and overhead. And so, uh, by instead building your application inside of a Docker container, you're more or less guaranteed a pristine environment every time. It's very repeatable. Um, it's something that makes it easier for you to get closer to being able to replicate your CI build process on um, your local machine. Um, and so, like that's nice. Like it's not. It's never going to be a hundred percent the same as what you're doing in in CI. But it at least gets you closer, and and I like that a lot. 
Um, so I gave a talk about that, and uh, that was nice. People seemed to seem to like it, and like, I'm just happy that that um, I've been able to kind of spread that knowledge around. So, so can I ask a, a clarifying question there? So, so what you're saying is it's basically you have a Docker container that is your build environment, and then I presume that that's then generating a, a Docker image of your actual deployable. So it's I've done it a couple different ways. It my at previous clients we have used Docker containers as the artifact of our build, and so that's the actual thing that our application runs off of. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Uh, at my current client, they're using Pivotal Cloud Foundry, and um, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, at least prior to version 2.0, which they just announced at the end of the year. Um, doesn't really have super great support for containers. Like you can run um, a regular Docker container in PCF pre 2.0, but it's a bit of a pain. Um, now post 2.0, they're basically adding you know Kubernetes as an option for you to run containers, and that'll make things a lot easier. But I haven't yet gotten a chance to use that. Uh, so that's kind of a long way, uh, kind of dancing around the, the the answer of with my current client, we're not. Um, Building a Docker container is the output of our of our build. We're building just standard jars for our our Java microservices, and so we build those inside of a Docker container, and then take the take those uh, jars, and then you know take carry them on uh, into the the rest of the the build process. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I was I was curious about the same thing. Uh, yeah, cool. Thanks for that explanation. Yeah, yeah sure. So you talk about you're doing a DevOps. At your current client, and and you said there's a little you're doing some CI/CD and helping get the pipeline set up and things like that. What is sort of the what is sort of the state of uh, the test automation and you know, sort of the build automation that you're inheriting? In other words, is are you sort of retrofitting existing automation into a good CD pipeline, or is there really are you starting from scratch and actually building all that collateral up? Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of both blessed and cursed, and that it's a completely greenfield project, and so I kind of have carte blanche to do what I want, um, and that's nice because of course I get to 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 kind of build this thing the way that I want. Um, some of the downsides are is that because I think that you need a certain level of maturity to unlock, uh, like technical maturity, like code base maturity to unlock certain things. Um, like for instance, we don't really have a solid automated test bed for for any of our individual services. So like it's hard for me to say with absolute certainty when I deploy one of our microservices that it is actually in in good shape. Um, and so like there are definitely some some things that I think will get better as the the code base um, is built up and, and matures. But in the meantime, um, I'm I'm overall pretty happy because yeah, we're we're just building it from scratch. Uh, it's it's nice and clean, um, and yeah, that aspect of it is at least quite nice. Yeah, one of the things that that I've struggled with in the past and I continue to struggle with in the in the present. Is uh, is sort of trying to build a good DevOps infrastructure around projects that were not conceived in the DevOps mindset, right? And so when you start a when you when you start trying to bolt these things onto existing projects, it can be done and it can be done reasonably well, but it's much more difficult to do it. I found than than when you start out in that mindset. When you start out in the mindset of proper test automation, um, fully automated builds, with the mindset in the team. That the uh, that the pipeline itself is going to carry the builds forward. Um, a lot of software that was built 
with the mindset that a person or a quality engineer or whatever is going to be involved in that carry forward, uh, those seem, it seems like it's actually pretty hard to automate that mindset, um, as opposed to doing it sort of CD native. Yeah, most definitely. And, um, in certain aspects uh, at this client, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with uh, also some kind of legacy practices. Uh, like, for instance, the the build agents that, that we run on are all snowflakes. They're all manually provisioned. There's no automated scripting or anything like that. Um, and so I've been kind of uh, working with the people that, that, that kind of manage those things. And like they understand, uh, luckily, they've been doing this long enough that they understand the pain that comes with um, having to manually manage these things. And so I've been using that. That, uh, that pain of theirs as a way to uh, like leverage getting them into thinking more about hey maybe we could use some some automated tools to to do this provisioning like you know right now we're trying to to write some Ansible playbooks that will uh, let them you know repeatedly um, uh, apply the the same configuration changes to all of the different build agents when you know right now they just have to SSH into each of one of them uh, in time and maybe they'd run a script or maybe they do it manually depending on the kind of change that they're making uh, but this way um, we'll have a nice easy repeatable thing that they can run uh, a simple command that can run against all of the different agents at once um, and on top of that I've even found a pretty nice uh, framework called Molecule for um, kind of test driving your Ansible playbooks. And it's pretty nice because it'll it'll orchestrate things like spinning up a Vagrant uh, VM that'll run your playbooks against it and then run either server spec or test infra tests against it so that you can test your playbooks on either like a, a local VM or a Docker container or whatever you want um, and have a little bit more confidence before you run your playbooks against uh, your actual infrastructure. And it's been super helpful. Like I uh, did a proof of concept this morning actually with him, uh, ran it against a real machine. I had to make one change and then it was totally fine. That's kind of a long-winded way of, uh, of, of answering your question. But yeah, the, the, the gist of it is that, yeah, uh, we have other other aspects outside of our project that, that have sort of a, a, you know, a more old school mindset of management, but because they're at least willing and, and open to to try and find ways to do things better and do it in a more automated manner, then that's okay. Great. Well, then let's move on uh, to uh, James Fargo. How, uh, how have you been? What have you been up to? What's interesting in your world? I, I've I've been great. Um, <clears throat> what's let's see what's been interesting in my world. I've I've kind of had a little bit of um, a little bit of technical ADD um, as well as a couple of things um, uh, keeping me focused um, at uh, at my current client. Um, we've pretty much just been doing uh, run-of-the-mill cr- uh, CRUD microservices, um, deploying to uh, Amazon AMIs, um, uh, mainly uh, Java and Groovy um, uh, tech stack. Um, got using Dynamo as persistence. Um, I think since we last spoke, uh, my current team has cranked out either three or four different microservices, um, all just kind of really small, um, but still uh, rather uh, rather communicative um, and and um, uh, cohesive. Um, I've also got an Android project that I've been working on um, for uh, probably almost six months now. I think uh, it, it's to help me out with flying. Um, as well as get me up to speed with um, <clears throat> get me up to speed with a lot of the current Android practices. Um, it's something I've been dabbling with in my in my um, 
non-work time uh, for, for quite some time now. However, uh, up until probably a year ago, I've, I've kind of ignored that the Android ecosystem. Um, so I'm, I'm getting back into that. And Android is actually doing some really cool and really interesting things, um, <clears throat> with, especially with their new devices and the new frameworks. Um, they're still not coming anywhere near Apple as far as their market saturation, um, at least not here in the U.S. But uh, I, I, I think they're still doing amazing things uh, and still like putting out some really, really beautiful um, designs and OS and devices uh, and whatnot. Um, outside of that, uh, I've been uh, I've been playing around with a lot of multi-threading. Um, it's something I haven't really done a lot in my career um, and, and development. Um, most of the stuff, uh, most of the things that uh, and projects that I've worked with throughout my career have are for the most part like just simple crud just trying to figure out how to get things into and out of a database um and if you're not working with very large data sets um there's not really a whole lot of um like mathematically interesting or or, or other uh problems like that most of the time the the problems that you're dealing with are, are problems of scale um as well as problems of 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 lots of hands in the code base, which are causing conflicts and problems. And so you've got to structure things well and, and, and in a way that, that you can still add features and functionality uh, and not trip over each other. Um, so I, I've, I've been having a lot of fun playing with multi-threading. I finally picked up um, uh, a copy of a book, which I don't have uh, at, at my fingertips. And I think it's um, I'm working effectively uh, with, with multi-threading, uh, which is, is really great. Um, I, I started playing with, with Kubernetes, um, just a little bit. Um, I, I, uh, some months ago I purchased, uh, a 2U server, um, that had been reclaimed and it's got a, uh, between a couple of sockets. It's, I think I've got 16 cores and a couple hundred gigs of Ram, uh, and this machine sitting on my desk. When I turn it on, it kind of looks, kind of sounds like a jet engine. But uh, I got some I got some VMs installed on it, and I've I've started installing Kubernetes. So I'm looking forward to playing around with that and playing with um, scaling out some Docker containers here on my desk um, uh, and seeing how far I can uh, get with that. However, um, one of the things that I'm actually most excited about, um, and this just might be I, I don't know why I'm I'm, I'm excited about it, but um, but I am uh, is uh, the the next edition of Effective Java has um, recently been released, uh, the third edition, um, and it covers Java 7, 8, and 9. Uh, and I think this is uh, rather really significant because it, it, it talks a lot about um, the Java Streams API as well as working with Lambdas, um, and it really describes a lot of the best practices um, or at least kind of establishes them um, going forward uh, because since since the, the streams API with Java has come out, I've found that um, as people are, are starting to delve into functional programming, I, I, I find that people are kind of abusing the, the, the API. Um, and while you can actually do all these things that at an initial glance, one might think, oh, that's, that's a log to meter violation. That's easy. You're not supposed to be doing all the dot this, dot that, dot the other. Um, and they see the functional programming in the Fluent API, and they're like, oh, I can do this, and it's so easy, and I can map this, and I can filter that, and I can do this. And like, oh, hey, but now I'm starting to run into scoping problems. So now the people are, 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 are kind of ignoring the fact that, that 
that side effect usually, pardon me, in most cases, um, side effects in functional programming is, is not a good thing. Um, it tends to lead to, um, lead to side effects that you're unaware of, um, problems that are like bugs that are hard to track down. Uh, but it does, I, I think when, when, when the, the, the streams and fluent APIs are actually done really well, I think it makes for incredibly easy, easy to read code. Um, and you can get a lot done in, in very little, uh, uh, lines of code and documentation, and, and on top of that, it makes it incredibly readable. Um, and one of one of the things that I'm I'm pretty hardcore about is is readability. I I, I kind of strive for um, the next engineer that comes behind me to to maintain my code. I I, I don't want them hunting me down to either hurt me because my code is so horrible, or or rather. Um, or, 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 or not quite as bad, just asking me questions because I, 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 I like to try to communicate with them through the code uh, without me being there. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that, that, that I'm hardcore about. So I, I guess in summary... Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think I quote you a lot when uh, I, I, I feel like I stole this quote from you and you say you stole it from someone else, but the code like the next person's a homicidal maniac who's meaning to kill you, right? And it's usually and it, and it's usually me, and and that's probably points to some kind. Yeah. Of, yeah. No, that's that's not my quote. I, I wish I could I wish I could uh, claim it, but no, that's not me. And and honestly, off the top of my head, I can't remember who it was. But that is that is an awesome quote. Yeah, that that's that's one of my favorites. Um, and definitely, yeah, that's I, I I think that's something that 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 every every engineer and developer should strive for. Um, and and I kind of want to take that quote and go to like every institution and 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 programming boot camp and and just smack every instructor with it and be like look don't i i'm I'm tired of coming across developers that want to name their variables x that's that's not a good thing stop it (laughs) yeah why would you use x when you can use i i stands for iterator or stands for imbecile yeah that's right Amen. Yeah, I think I think that's I I have so I didn't know that 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 book was coming out. I think that's a really good thing to be excited about. Um, I remember when the Streams API first came out, and the first time I saw Java eight code, somebody who wrote this code was very very excited about it, but had really no idea what to do with it. And I started reading, it and and I consider myself a pretty good Java programmer. And it's I took about twenty minutes to try to read like an eight line. Um, you know, stream block, and I could not figure out for the life of me what it was doing. Um, and and so I think it's come a long way, and I think some I think some people maturity has come a long way in using it. Although there are still some people that abuse it. I would say that that one of the mistakes I think that that maybe they made in Java was because one of the things that's really great about functional programming, and I think uh, Scala does a pretty good job of this, is enforcing immutability. Um, and Java inherently has no way to enforce immutability, and they did not bake that into the streams API. So all of those, all of those uh, finger, finger, I'm doing finger quotes, but all those finger quotes, functional um, fluent APIs that, that you chain together um, may or may not be mutating your object, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, that's 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 kind of one of the things that I love about um, love about that streams API is is. You're you're not you're not tied to immutability, but for for all intents and purposes, um, you should probably pretend that your objects are immutable, um, and 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 hope on that and drive towards that. And if you can if you can pull into things that that make them immutable, do that. 
Although there's there's other I've found that there's other things that make it rather difficult to make things uh, uh, immutable as and and it's kind of it's it's like a convenience trade off, right? So, for example, uh, at the 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 I want to say Jackson, um, uh, the the parser from from JSON to objects. So a lot of times has uh it, it needs a no args constructor and then it wants to call set setters on everything so so when you're doing that you can't it, you can't make things immutable um and i i recall a, a project that i was on down in houston um and uh we were we were using groovy and drop wizard and i believe the decision came up to use jackson or to roll our own parsers and and we rolled our own parsers and i believe we rolled our own parsers so that we could enforce immutability um, and, and I, I actually look back at that project, um, and, uh, because I learned a lot on that one. Um, and I really like that. And I actually model uh, a decent amount of my projects off of that one. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's something that I've, I've always hated about Jackson for what it's like that, that whole old school, everything go through a setter. It's, it's not very, it's not very object oriented. Like it's, and, and it's, and it's driven so many other bad patterns of like POJOs as data containers instead of objects that represent state with behavior that, uh, it's, it's ruined a lot of, I, my opinion, it's ruined a lot of Java, a lot of Java programs, a lot of Java applications as a result. Cool. Okay. Um, what else? Anything that's, that's a lot going on. What else? Anything else interesting? I think, yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, that that kind of puts a bow on on a few of the things that I've been doing over the over the last while. Um, I'm I'm curious what you've been up to though. What have you been up to, dude? So at work, I have uh, been expanding my role a little bit as architect. Um, and my journey in my in my current company started with me as a developer. I became an architect, and I've I've been really fully embracing that role and trying to get a, a broader understanding of what's going on in uh, in my products and my organization. Um, as as part of that, there's been a little bit of organizational change that's been going on. We we basically we over the summer and and into you know we're we're tech season based and into our tax season we had a few initiatives that were going on that were um that uh we had some technical challenges with a few of them and we we made it through them but we real we you know we did some broad retrospectives we recognized that there were some things that we could have done better and and some approaches that we could have that, that we could uh could change to improve our ability to deliver value to our customers faster. Um, and and a, one of those big changes that that I've been sort of driving and then and, and helping bring to a few different levels of the organization is the idea of going after uh, small slices. And, and this isn't necessarily just stories of thin vertical slices, but even um, you know, at the, at the project level or, or at the, you know, at the the sort of work chunk level, instead of going after something where you need everything to come together and you maybe need five or six dependencies and you need three months of work and all this stuff to sort of be orchestrated, all the data to be migrated and all that kind of stuff and, and work that orchestration to come together and deliver this big new feature. Um, it's, we've, we recognize that, that, that approach, um, as we get into a broader ecosystem, we're building more of a more of a platform of services, and and the more complicated that that architectural model gets, the harder it is to orchestrate all these things to happen correctly at the right time with the right team and with all the all the parts interoperating together. So we've been doing a lot of uh, reflecting on how can we break down work so that we can go after uh, more frequent deliveries of value. Um, end to end 
without having to orchestrate too many things together. So there's been a lot of rethink about the way that we structure uh, change to our services and change to our applications. Um, there's been a lot of thought that I put into, you know, if I need to make, um, if I need to, to sort of swap a backend behind a consistent API, uh, how do you do that while you, where, where you can still have the old backend in play, migrate over time, um, you know, users or data into the new backend and shift people, you know, shift people over time rather than have to migrate all the data and then flip the big switch and, and turn over. So there's been a lot of a lot of those kind of things going on. Um, we're, we're sort of coming out of a period of of some some legacy backends that we really want to retire and have been hanging on for far too long without a really good migration strategy. So there's been a, it's been a lot of interesting um you know, I've been dipping back into uh, working effectively with legacy code, but trying to apply those concepts not to code, but to like full architectural modules, right? So it's it's a, like we're, it's almost like working effectively with legacy services, right? Um, which has been a a really kind of interesting journey, and, and not something that I've really thought about at that scale um, very very often in the past. So it's been an, it's been an interesting discovery. Um, and at the same time, we are uh, migrating all of our infrastructure from on-prem to AWS. So there's been a big, and, and that's been a really interesting, um, it's been an interesting journey because not only are we having to, you know, get ramped up on on all of the AWS capabilities, many of our services are already Dockerized. So we're trying to look for what is the best Dockerization in AWS strategy um, which, uh, you know, we're, we're working, we're still sort of working through how we want to go about it. Uh, they've, they're going to release a new, um, Kubernetes service. It's called EKS. It's uh, elastic Kubernetes service. Um, but it's, it's not quite ready yet. Uh, they're still developing it. It's in preview right now, but it's obviously not ready for prime time. And so in the meantime, there are a couple of different Amazon uh, capabilities that can handle containers, but even, even they admit they're, none of them are really um, enterprise production worthy, which is why they're building a new Kubernetes service. And so in the meantime, we're working on, you know, how do we orchestrate you know, managing our own Kubernetes cluster or, or whatever in AWS to get these services out there. But the other thing that that has been interesting about it is that, you know, if, uh, this is one of those things of working for a big company. We've got compliance and we've got, you know, sort of central team security and things that that have driven a security audit on all of our services as, as part of um, moving from our on-prem to cloud. And while we don't have any... Um, particular security issues, it is, it has raised a lot of tech debt and it's given me an opportunity to, uh, work with my teams, my management to prioritize resolving tech debt on the, you know, this is the, so these are some of the things that we need to do to be absolutely a hundred percent lockdown tight to move to AWS. So it's actually been a, it's been a, a fun journey of identifying and actually having, I finally have a business reason to go after a lot of the tech debt that I found in, in our stuff and, and, I'm be, and being able to leverage this to, you know, help retire some things and to, and to move some stuff in, into different modes of operation that we've not, you know, we've, it's, it's been one of those things. And, and this is one of the struggles of sort of working through um, a, a growing and maturing um, platform is that there's a lot of stuff that the technology team wants to do to improve the lives of the developers, to improve stability. Um, but the the product folks want new features, right? And so justifying doing that work and even justifying it to myself, because I'm, I am, 
I'm very focused on making sure that we're delivering value for our customers. So trying to figure out how to justify doing some of this work has, has been pretty challenging. When we look at the sort of the cost benefit of, you know, do I migrate this legacy service as is, or do I build something new to take its place? Or do I, you know, migrate its back end to something new while we're making this journey? If, if I can, you know, it, it's a, it's a good opportunity to reflect on what does it cost to maintain tech debt? right? What is, what is the cost of that debt? And is now the time to pay it down or is, you know, or do we continue, um, do we continue paying that, paying that, uh, that debt? So, um, so for me, it's been a lot of, uh, a lot of drawing boxes and lines and new and different kinds of boxes and lines. Um, you know, I do like to, uh, I do like to keep it sharp on, uh, on the dev side. So, um, one of the things that I've, I picked up is decided, I've finally decided to learn, um, how to write native iOS apps. Um, and part of what drove me into, so I'm, I'm teaching myself Swift and, uh, and, and Coco for iOS. One of the things that drove me there, it's something Spargo, you, you kind of mentioned earlier is that a lot of the work that we do is on sort of CRUD apps, moving data around and stuff. And, and that's, I've done it. It's, it's, you know, in some ways it's kind of boring and not something that I like to do in my spare time. But, but every time I've tried to do something like more complicated in the, in the web world, I always run into like, okay, now I've got to deploy it. And then I've got to write a security layer and I've got to authenticate because I can't just put an API out there that anybody can get into. And all that stuff is very tedious and annoying. And then getting a database deployed somewhere, like I do this all day. So when I was thinking about like, how can I play around with, you know, I want to just write code that does stuff. And I don't want to deal with all that other crap. And I was like, you know what? Mobile apps are really, really great for that because the data is all on my device. I can just save it to a flat file. Like I don't have to monkey around with any of that stuff, but then I can still explore ideas without having to deal with all of that like extra layer of things that you that you absolutely have to do if you're going to expose something to the internet. Um, I can get away with not having to do any of that by by doing it iOS. And it's it's been sort of one of my things that I've always wanted to learn um, learn anyway. And so it's been a good motivation. So I've been playing around with some iOS apps. Um, Xcode's interesting as a, as a hardcore IntelliJ guy, um, Xcode, uh, I, I keep hitting alt enter and it's not doing what I want it to do. And, and the idea of, uh, I've, i still sort of vacillating back and forth between, uh, laying out uh, UIs with interface builder and then doing them in code. And like interface builder seems really cool. Cause I can drag and drop controls. And then I just, I see what it looks like. But the first time it's, it's like every other magic framework that I've ever used, right? Zip files are just like spring XML and, and they're like, you know, everything else where as long as it's doing exactly what I want it to do, it's great. But as soon as something goes wrong, I'm like, screw it. I'm going back to writing it myself. And I, and I keep ending up writing, um, writing my layouts by hand instead of using the, I kind of use it for prototyping. And then once I get a look that I like, I go back and I code it up, code it up by hand. I don't know if that's what they intend for me to do, but what I've been doing. Interesting. Yeah, it's probably not what they intend you to do, but uh, who knows? I don't know. I, I find with, um, and I, I know that that iOS and Android are completely different beasts, but I, I find that when I'm when I'm doing Android layouts, um, every once in a while, yeah, I'll I'll do the the WYSIWYG drag and drop, and and see what it produces, and then I'll go in and 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 massage it into something that I can actually read and and make it do make it do exactly what I want to do um, and, and, and get all the nooks and crannies and stuff. 
Yeah, and the, and the, one of the differences is it's been a while since I've done Android, but the Android, at least when I did it, the a lot of the WYSIWYG stuff would would actually generate code, and then you could go and kind of massage it. Whereas with Xcode, it generates like you generate zip files or whatever, and then. And, and so and and then they get those those zip files get interpreted by your by the by the runtime. So it's not like it's just generating like your your layout class for you, and then you go and kind of tweak it. It's a it's a completely different um, whole stack how it, how it executes. And so it's not something that you can edit by by hand really easily. I mean, you can because they're I think they're XML or something, but. Um, it's not something that you would. So it's it's just a it's a really different paradigm. It's not one that I've that I've really used with a lot of success before. I think the last time I used a WYSIWYG UI editor was honest to God Visual Basic Six. Yeah, region in the Wayback Machine, which I am I am not too proud to admit that I once used. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll tell you, man, it was good and easy. And if you needed to just crack something together real fast, uh, it was it was great for writing toy apps back in the day. Yeah, I mean, that's about that's about uh, it for me on the tech side. And getting getting ramped up into Amazon has been has been really fun. And 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 like I said, you know, sort of revisiting how we structure work has always been a topic. You guys know has has been something that's always interesting to me. And and going through a cycle and being able to actually take real learnings and then bring them forward into uh, how we're building stuff in the future has been pretty exciting. So, right, hell yeah, man, that's awesome. Yep. Okay. Well, um, unless you guys have anything else burning, I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Um, so I think we can, we can wrap it up and let's leave it here. Um, so the, the plan going forward and is I'm, I'm making, I'm making a promise to anybody who's actually listened this far into this episode is that we are going to get back on this. We are going to release content on a, on a more frequent and regular basis. Um, and so, um, I'm gonna, gonna try really hard to get this episode out as quickly as I can. And then we're going to get on a, we're going to get on a calendar and a cadence and, and start sharing, uh, more and more of our thoughts with, uh, all y'all that listen to us. So, um, uh, with that, I think I'll say thank you very much, uh, Mr. Spargo. Thank you. And Mr. Thomas, thanks for being on. Anytime. And, uh, everybody who's listening, good night. Good night.